bringing their problems to me for as long as I can remember. I have one of those faces that just says, tell me what's going on. And now I have one of those podcasts that says, go ahead, tell me what's going on. Welcome to Mess in Progress. Hey guys, welcome to Mess in Progress with myself, Gina Briona, my lovely co-host slash everything person, Catherine G. Mendoza. Catherine, say hi to the people. Hello, people. Oh, I spit. Hello, people. You look so cute, though. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, today's one of those like really weird fall days where it's like not hot, but if you do too much activity, it could like get quickly hot. You know what I mean? Yeah. I am like not excited for fall at all. Why? I'm cranky. I am cranky today. I'm going to be, I am 100% cranky today. Okay. I mean, I, I am as well, but they're probably for different reasons. Yes. I think I'm just regular, probably regular hormonal lack of sleep, cranky, yeah, uh, and frustrated with everything. Yeah. Um, but there's other. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, there's there's a million reasons to be cranky. There's a million reasons to be cranky in 2020. Thank you, 2020, for the millions of reasons that you have provided for crankiness. Yeah. But, um, cranky I'm just one of those days you're just cranky and depressed and like I don't ugh, I don't want to no. it was a struggle for me to do my makeup and, and like get ready for a zoom like I was like it's gonna take me a minute I'm gonna need some ice cream <laughs> oh ice cream I wish I had some ice cream right now ice cream man no yeah I feel like well for me mine is more about like um uh debate fatigue it's more of that. I'm like, I just, I feel like it's like a version of, remember the 2016 election and the way that people felt the day after um, he whom has not be named yes. one. It's kind of like a very small like version of that where you're just exhausted for no reason. Well, yeah. for a reason, but like for no reason of your doing other than the emotional turmoil of like reality i only saw the highlights and it was quite the shit show indeed uh, oh yeah it was from from just from the highlights just from the highlights it was like is this a debate or a rap battle what is going on here it wasn't it wasn't even like because the thing is that it, it was it was I don't know how to explain it. It's very hard to put into words because it's similar to the Hillary debates, except for the difference between Hillary and Biden is literally the fact that Hillary actually had more like ability to control like herself in the sense you know where he is. <laughs> no, you want to know something about Biden because a lot of people keep talking about like his um. You know, the when they're saying like, oh, maybe he has dementia. I'm actually starting to think that's like a little bit rude to say because oh, Joe Biden has a clear, okay. he has a clear stutter. And so it's rude to say that somebody who has a stutter, who gets flustered, has some type of like impairment. And that's, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but that was what I noticed where it's like, it, it, a lot of people keep talking about the, the word bullying, but to an extent you saw that dynamic, which is like, here's a person who's just trying to form a sentence and the another person who doesn't let them talk, like at all. And he did that, Trump did that to Hillary, except Hillary actively was listening and had less of an issue forming sentences as a response or a rebuttal. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. 
I feel, I honestly, I feel bad for, this is something that I, I hate saying because I don't think you should actually feel bad for people you don't actually physically know, but I do feel bad for Biden for all the crap he's taken in just, you know, just based on the fact that, oh, he doesn't know where he is. He's old. He's this, he's that. Like, I'm like, oh, that's, I mean, to me, it's also very funny, but to me, I'm still like, oh, I can't imagine being in that position and you've got enough thrown at you. And now it's like schoolyard teasing of who you are as a person. I honestly low key feel like um, he was controlling himself because he's like on a, I will slap a bitch mode. Like that was a lot of what I was noticing. If you looked at him, there was a point where he wasn't even looking at the camera. I feel like low key, a part of him was like, you just mentioned my son, I'm gonna slap you in your mouth. Like, but I'm on national television. And I feel like a part of him has this old school politics yeah. that, that like, you know, is composed, is professional, is presidential, that whole thing. I think also Biden has the weight of the Obama reputation on his shoulders. And people need to remember that no matter what Joe Biden does, he will always be a representative for the Obama administration, even if he is the president. So yeah. in many ways, he doesn't get the liberty, like the way that Obama didn't get the liberty of just acting anyway because he was representing the Black community. Well, Joe Biden is doing that in proxy just by the fact that he was his VP. That's harder. You know what I mean? Like, I think Hillary had already done away with the Bill Clinton thing by the time she started um, her second campaign, right? The last time. I don't think she needed to have this rest respectability politics of like first lady anymore because she had already been other things other than first lady so i do think that that's part of why he's like stoic and like just like has that is lapsed a lot instead of responding because he's I, I really think in his mind he it looks to me like he wanted to be like yo shut the fuck up like that's it he wanted to say the word fuck like, like that scene in White Chicks where they're like, oh, you want to talk about mamas? Like you could just see Biden get ready to hit that hood button. Like, oh, you want to mention my son? Oh, okay. He did at some point tell Trump to shut up, which I think was everybody's like, ha, 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 ha. He did. I'm more surprised people aren't talking about the fact that like when, um, when Trump said, um, uh, uh, can I be honest? And then uh, Biden said, you can try. Yeah, I I think it's funny that people aren't noticing. Like he, this is what I mean. He was throwing little moments, so that's why I'm saying like, yes, there were tactics of bullying, but the way he was being, the way he was coming off was less about. I feel like he felt bullied and more like, yo, you're not even trying to play the politics game of like this is a debate. I need to be able to speak. You need to be able to speak. So at that point, I could see like I I saw this tweet that said. Um, if Biden would have just walked off, we all would have understood. And that's a fact. Yeah. Cause there was a point where like even Wallace should have walked off. You know what I mean? I, I love the fact that people say Samuel Jackson needs to be the next moderator. <laughs> that was <would be> amazing. Because <laughs> I like the meme said, I said two minutes, motherfucker. <laughs> That is the only way to keep that panel under control would have been having Sam Jackson moderate. Oh, please, please, please debate gods. <laughs> please. You just, you just need somebody who, who can cause some type of fear and check in Trump. And I know people will say, oh, Trump doesn't, isn't afraid of anybody, but 
we're no longer playing nice. We're playing dirty. You know what I mean? So I feel like to an extent, I wonder who does cause fear in Trump, you yeah. know? And like, bring that person. Yeah. I don't know who, who um... oh, I think our guest is here. It says admin has entered the waiting room. I got to sneeze. Hold on. I'm trying to avoid sneezing. I'm like, hold it, hold it, hold it. Think about something other than sneezing. And we're back. All right. We're going to bring in our guest, uh, who is a, uh, a very well-known writer of children's books. He's a motivational speaker. He's an amazing all-around person. Trevor Romain, we're going to bring him in right now. And we shall, let's see how this works out. Today has been really weird. Hey, and we are on. Uh, we are on. Hello. Hello. Hello, Trevor. It's so nice to meet you. Hello from New York. Uh, you're in California? I'm in uh, Kauai, Hawaii. Oh, wow. Ooh. Oh, wow. That's wow. That's the nicer. You're, you're living the life. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I surely am. Uh, Trevor, this is my co-host, Catherine. Catherine, Trevor. Uh, Hi. Hey. I'll introduce you guys. Um, I don't know you personally, but I know somebody on your team, Alexander Bryant, who's a good friend of mine, whom I adore, is the one that hooked this up. Uh, how did you yeah. and Alex end up working together? Um, I call him Big Al because he's bigger than life, he's but, really um, and he's small. Uh, yeah, um, uh, he his mom was involved with the nonprofit, uh, one of the nonprofits that I formed, and that was to help military kids and. So we saw what he did, and uh, we needed somebody to handle our uh, media uh, and social networking, and it was a natural fit. So we grabbed him as quick as we could. That's awesome. It's good to know that he's working with good people. Um, he had yeah. wonderful things to say about you, so I'm glad we're having you on the show today. Uh, we always start off with three basic questions. These are three rapid-fire questions. You can answer them in any importance you see fit, uh, and then we'll get into some other stuff. So first off, where are you from? What's your zodiac sign, and how did you get? Uh, how did you start as a children's book author, illustrator, podcaster, and motivational speaker? Okay, well, I am from Johannesburg, South Africa. I grew up in South Africa. Uh, got to a point in my life where I was in the advertising business, and politics was terrible. It was right in the thick of apartheid, and I just didn't want to be in that space anymore, and wasn't comfortable. So I came to the United States and lived here. I am a typical Sagittarian, typical. Shoot the arrow, wherever that arrow lands, pick it up, shoot another one. And so I just, I follow those arrows everywhere. And uh, my involvement and the reason I wrote children's books was that I was in the military when I was a, a young dude. Uh, we all had to do uh, two years military service in South Africa, similar to what they do in Israel and yeah. and some of the Norwegian countries. So I, um, I happened to one day be in a hospital, passing through a room, trying to get to visit a friend of mine. And it was filled with kids. A lot of kids had been injured, landmine explosions, and a whole lot of that really sad stuff. And as I walked past one of the beds, there was a little boy who put his hands up to me and he said, which means, please, can you hold me? And I'm trying to be this big deal soldier guy, you know, and I'm like, look at this kid. And he looks at me with these big, big, big eyes. And something happened in the deepest part of my heart. I felt 
this feeling which I now know is called empathy. And uh, I uh, put down my backpack and I picked up this little boy uh, who couldn't really use his legs. And I put my arms around him and he put his arms around me and he put his little face against my neck and he started to cry. Oh my goodness, this little boy cried so hard. His tears ran down my cheek and my neck and into my shirt and touched my heart. And uh, that, that was a aha moment. I didn't know it then, but his little voice saying, pick me up, uh, became a mantra. And, and I based my whole career and my life working with kids on that voice. And that's wow. why I'm here today. And that's why I am um, being kind to kids. That's amazing. That story almost made me cry. I'm like, hold it together, Gina. Hold it together. I'm about to bust out in tears. I'm a new mom. You can't tell me baby stories about like stuff like that without me like welling up just, you know, thinking of the, you know, feeling of a child just on your body, trusting you, yes. crying with you, a child that doesn't know you, just randomly just asking yeah. you to hold him and you being there for that child. Like, I'm like, oh. My, all my mommy's spidey senses are, are going off and just like... Okay. Oh, but you know, one of the cool things about that was that I, I found that intuitively and, and innately, and that's why I, I have this career, is that I am able to not only listen to kids, but hear them. So I, I, I'm just really glad that I was uh, open enough to be able to follow through with what that kid requested because so often you know we tell kids what we think they need to hear instead of listening to what they're asking for and instead of running off and trying to get help for the kid I and, and, and you know I, I I did get in a little trouble from some superiors that said you shouldn't have been there you shouldn't have done that it's not your field you know but I'm really really glad I did and and yeah. that's the gift I was given is to be able to to speak to kids, especially kids who are, have been through trauma. And I've worked a lot with terminally ill kids and I, I continually now work with uh, kids in orphanages in Africa. Yeah. Uh, I go every year. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm a very lucky dude that that, that gift was given to me. And, um, and, I, and I, I took it with open arms. No, that's absolutely yeah. amazing. And you touched on something that is actually really important, the difference between listening and hearing. And that's really important. I don't think that a yeah. lot of people listen to kids the way that you've learned to listen and, and hear what a child's needs are and actually pay attention to those needs. Because you're right, I think a lot of adults do end up shrugging off a lot of children's needs as either too needy or, you know, we don't want to make you this type of kid, so we'll take this away from you. You know, I had a whole debate with my friends about the cry it out method for, you know, teaching infants so-called independence. And so I think it's a beautiful thing that as an adult that you've learned to actually listen to children properly, I would say. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's so important to, and, and I think you, you bring up a really good point as well. So often what we do with children is we say to children, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. That makes us feel like we've done something, yeah. but it doesn't help a child to say it's gonna be okay because what it really does is make the child feel alone in whatever they're struggling with. If a child comes up and says, mom, dad, uncle, I'm, I'm scared, or, 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 or what's going to happen? You know, when kids see the news these days, especially when they put it on a repeat cycle, 
um, I, I read a lot of research about 9-11. Kids thought it was happening again and again and again because it kept on being shown on TV. And then everybody pats the kid on the head, says it's going to be okay. That does not make it okay. What we have to do is say to a child something like, wow, I'm scared too. What do you think we should do? Or what do you think, what, what do you, think you should do? And you're basically giving them the permission to solve their own problem with your support. And I, and I don't like to use the word help because that infers that a person's helpless. Uh, a lot of kids are not helpless. They just need support. And so that's, that's, that's where I try to look at how to, how to help them with, with issues. That's amazing. You um, do a lot of work with kids, for sure. Uh, I read your book, Connecting Kids in a, Discon oh. kids in a Disconnected World. It was absolutely uh amazing um and i have a couple of questions on that but i'm gonna let katherine start us off with some of our questions here for you uh um yeah so one thing that we were like as we were talking about your work you know because we um have had conversations about uh children and like um how to speak to children and not like speak at them or um you know uh baby talk like speaking to them in that way. Um, one of the things was, and I know myself, I have a niece who's about five years old and she's growing up in a very different way than I was with the YouTube era, right? And so like a lot of the times my mother, I mean, my, my mother and my sister and I will be like, how did she learn that? And my sister's like, I didn't teach her that. And I the quickest to assume YouTube. I'm like, she's watching this stuff. For yourself, for your own work, like um, since, since you began to now, how have you like, use the internet and YouTube and things like that to continue to grow your work and connect with kids with all this other information that's out there that um, sometimes is packaged as like good information. But when you watch it, you're like, this could be harmful. Like this is not necessarily teaching the right message. Uh, that's a great question. You know, I've never been asked that question before, seriously. And I'm so, and I'm so glad you did. And I'll, I'll, let's address the packaging first. Uh, and, and this has happened, and it started a lot with Saturday morning cartoons, where a lot of those cartoons were designed to sell a product. And at the end of the day, it's like a lot of children's book authors, a lot of people who, who make little characters, they, they don't make money just being an author. It's one, of the, it's one of the most difficult jobs to actually make a living doing. What people are doing is trying to, trying to sell a product that goes with it, or, or uh, and, and often when you get sold a, a, a pack that's, oh, this is gonna be great for kids, the marketing is amazing, and you get into it, and really what, what somebody's doing is trying to push you in a direction that they, they want you to take. But it's so difficult to figure out who's who. Uh, one of the things that, that, that comes to mind for me, and uh, one of my heroes who didn't do that, was Mr. Rogers. He, actually spoke from the heart gently kindly and there was no agenda and isn't it amazing that even in in his old age there were infants and little kids sitting and enthralled by his television there was no bells and whistles and trying to catch attention and try to sell something so i think that's that that's what happens a lot i, I mainly have been doing uh, live connections with kids. I've done over 1,200 school assemblies in the last eight years. I've spoken to over a million kids. 
at schools, at uh, camps. And only now, because of COVID, am I working to try and take that energy, that um, sincerity, and put it on a flat screen. Because mm -hmm. when I'm in a room with a child or in an auditorium, I can gauge. I know, Gina, you too, right? If you're in front of an audience, yeah. you can tell immediately which way you have to push to, to grab them, because sometimes they get lost. And so uh, that's, that's basically uh, what I've, I'm uh, wrestling with a little bit now is how to take that content and present it in a sincere, genuine, honest fashion that people can, uh, that it can really help instead of me trying to push an agenda that I have, which unfortunately people need eyeballs to make the marketing money to be able to continue doing what they're doing. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just hoping that, that by word of mouth, and this is normally what happens, that the good stuff bubbles to the, the, to the surface so that, um, that we, can, we can find each other and, and be able to support, support each other in this. Yeah. So no, I hope that I answers your question. No, it totally does. Because um, actually, I had just finished um, a few weeks ago watching the Mr. Rogers movie, the, um, the one with Tom Hanks. And yeah. um, it, it, this is a very interesting conversation I had with my sister, which we answered later and told us a lot about ourselves as children. When I was a child, I actually wasn't very much interested in Mr. Rogers because it made me feel weird. And I'm going to explain why. His calm nature was the complete opposite of my environment. And so I noticed that now when I go watching it, I realized that a lot of kids can be overstimulated, right? Like I come from a generation that had a ton of television and now even worse. So I told her, I feel like her generation loved Mr. Rogers. By the time I got watched it, I found it either boring or too low paced. But that is because of everything you're talking about because everything else was meant to sell. Everything else was meant to like get our attention that was meant to keep our attention. So now as an adult, when I rewatch things, I'm like, I completely understand it on a different level. And children should be watching things that engage them, aren't necessarily trying to just, you know, stay tuned for the next this or sell the next commercial. It's very interesting because a lot of people don't look at Mr. Rogers and even his public access, like um, not going to a cable network, not becoming this bigger thing, because he could have been for children. Um, as in regards to like, um, I don't know, the Barney route. Yeah. Um, he could have gone that route, but it was the intention for him and his content was, wasn't about that. It wasn't about the fame. It was about the kids. And so yeah. I find that very interesting that you brought it up. Yeah. And you know, what was interesting about him too, and which I love is that he, uh, he wasn't there to entertain which, and that's like a babysitter for kids so often. You know, sit down, watch this, watch these smirks, we're gonna entertain you. What he was doing is he was teaching kids. And that's why he kept it in the, in, in, you know, in the, 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 the public television arena. And interestingly enough, now research is showing that kids three, four or five years old today watch Mr. Rogers and are enthralled. And I think it's because they are being hammered from so many different directions that they can't hear. Now, uh, I am dyslexic and I struggled and still do struggle with ADD my whole life. When there's overstimulation, it's, it, it, I'm gone. School, because I used to doodle while I was doodling in my books, that's the way I learned. But they, they spanked me for doodling for, in the books. This is how I learned. If I needed to remember 
uh, uh, somebody from, from history, if I had to remember Butch Cassidy, for, for argument's sake, was, was a cowboy, something like that. I would draw a, a tombstone with a cowboy hat on it and write the date on it, like General Custer, date. And <laughs> when the test came up and I would see the question, words just disappear for me. But then I was like, oh, I can find that little drawing in my head to this day, mm. 40, 50 years later. Yeah. And so, so I think one of the things that was so wonderful about uh, uh, Mr. Rogers was slowing it down, listening, and most importantly, validating what a child was feeling. I, and that is so, and I discovered something that, that uh, illustrated that point perfectly. I have had the privilege of going to the Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi in Central Africa with the United Nations. And basically I was working in uh, refugee camps and uh, orphanages with former child soldiers. And a lot of these kids traumatized way. I felt like a fraud when I first went there because it was like, how can this white guy think he's going to actually go in there and understand what these black children who've been kidnapped and then forced to be soldiers would understand. But uh, one of the things that, that made me able to do it was a little incident that happened. We walk into this refugee camp and there are hundreds of kids and they run towards visitors. They swarm you. They just want skin. They want something to hold on to. Many of them haven't been hugged in a very long time. And when visitors come, they know that they're going to get hugged. So they come. So one of the workers had a rolled up newspaper. He was swatting away all the kids and telling them to get away from us. I was with the, you know, this very serious contingent from the United Nations. And then there was me, the old buffoon who's tagging along, you know. I'm a 14-year-old trapped in an old dude's body. So I connect with those kids. So... Uh, one of the little kids put his finger in my belt loop, really smart, probably six years old, right? And he hangs on for dear life. And this dude's trying to swat him away. And I said, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's fine, let him stay. He says, well, if he bothers you, tell me, I'll, I'll grab him away. I said, no, no, it's fine. So this little dude hung on my belt loop the whole day. I'm drawing on the chalkboard in front of the classes and he's just sitting and hanging. Uh, he, both his parents had been killed in Rwanda he was an orphan and they had brought him into this camp. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, this little dude's pulling my sleeve. He wants to ask me a question. So I said, okay, and through the translators, because it was some English, some French, you know, a whole, whole bunch of different uh, accents all thrown in. And the guy said to me, he wants to ask you a question. I said, sure. So I kneeled down and got to his eye level. And that's what I, I do with kids. It's really important to be able to get on a child's eye level when you're talking to them, because when we are over them and we're trying to comfort them or support them, it can be overwhelming for them. So I, get, I go down on his level, just so that we're on the even playing field. And I said to him, what's your question? And he, he hesitated. And I have learned just to sometimes sit in the discomfort, just sit because sometimes silence can freak people out and you want to run in the opposite direction. I said, okay, that's it. And he eventually said, can you help me find my mommy? I was about to answer him when one of the workers came over and said, I told you, we're going to find all your mommies one day. Don't worry. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, put up my hand. And I said to the little boy, hey buddy, where do you think your mommy is? He said, oh, she died. She's in heaven. I said, oh, you know what? 
My daddy died too. And tonight when I say my prayers, I'm going to ask my dad to pass on a message to your mom from you to tell her that you love her and that you miss her and you will never forget her. And this little boy's smile, his whole face lit up and he threw his arms around my leg and he hugged me. He goes, thank you. Thank you, mister. Thank you. And he ran off to play soccer with the other kids every few minutes waving to me just to make sure that we were connected. But that, that little boy, he needed validation to where he was, not somebody to say, it's okay, we're going to find your mommies. He knew she had passed away. Yeah. And so being able to uh, validate what a child is feeling, I think is what, what Mr. Rogers did fantastically and tackled subjects that make us feel uncomfortable. I wrote, I wrote a book called What on Earth Do You Do When Somebody Dies? Because I found that here in the United States, everybody is so, I'm, I'm, I don't want to use the language, I want to use, they are so afraid of going anywhere near death. First of all, oh, that means something's going to happen. Someone's going to die if I talk about death. And uh, so I wrote, what on earth do you do when somebody dies? And it just answers real questions. What happens to a person's body? Why do people have to die? What's going to happen to me? And uh, so, and that I learned also through, through guys like, like uh, Fred Rogers and, uh, and the kids at the orphanages and in the hospitals. Yeah. I mean, uh, speaking on that subject of dealing with death and grief, you've helped a lot of families deal with things like that, like grief and disasters and tragedy. Can you give us some of the tips that you've given them in handling this situation, especially when talking to kids? Like how, sure. how can you handle that? For me as a parent, I would love to know how you've handled those things. Absolutely. Uh, firstly, again, I think that that validation of what a child is feeling is really important. I, I know, like, working with a child once who is actually having really terrible nightmares. And I, I was saying, you know, the problem with, with fear is that we make it bigger than life. And, and we start fearing the fear itself, not what was we were going to fear in the first place. And so I said to this kid, he was telling me he's scared of monsters in the closet sometimes at night, which is, which is common in younger kids. And so I said to him, uh, what would happen if you walked over to the closet and you opened it? He said, the, the, the monster would grab me. I said, do you really think that? He goes, no. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I, would, I, I will bet my life that if you go to your closet at any time when you think there's a monster in there, the chances are that 99% of the time, there will be no monster. If there is a monster, you will be the first kid in the world to have discovered a real monster in your closet and you will become famous. So being able to you know, address a situation head on is, is something that I found works very, very well with kids, that validation uh, of what they're feeling. And, and so often, I have found if you pass the problem back to the kid in a kind way and try and figure out as a team how you might solve or work through a problem, it works fantastically well. You know, if somebody is, uh, I, I work a lot with military kids and many of them go through when their parents are deployed. And I've been brought in and we sit and chat and they worry that something may happen to their parent who's being deployed. And we discuss it a little bit and I say, well, you know, the chances are actually very slim because they're very, very, very well trained. And we talk about some of the facts. And then I say, so um, what do you think you can do about this? This missing 
your parent. Have you got any suggestions? And then they start saying, well, maybe I could do this, this, this. Okay, let's write it down. Let's figure it out. And uh, there was a girl whose dad was going to be gone for a long time. And she was like, I don't know how many days he's going to be gone. And I, she couldn't figure out really the time because it was going to be six months. And, and, and person. So I said, I'll tell you what, best thing to do. So you get, figure out about how many days. So we figured it out, I don't know, 200 days or something. And so they got Hershey's Kisses, one for every day, put them in a, in a bowl. And that little girl gave herself a little kiss every day from her dad. And she could see the bowl getting lower and lower. And so physically, she could actually connect with what was really happening, not just a theory or some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that's in, in the mind. And I said to her, now listen, if you go and you try and make those days go faster and you start eating all that candy, your teeth are going to fall out and your tummy will be really unhappy. So that's not going to work. You have to give yourself a little little kiss every day. And uh, it, it worked remarkably well. That's amazing. That's actually such a great thing um, to teach kids the patience of having to wait for a parent to return home for not just deployment, but just also mm -hmm. I teaching kids when their parents are coming home from work, like the kids that are anxious, kids that, you know, have parents that travel for work, you know, mm -hmm. that can be difficult. But what a great way to teach a child, like, this is how many days you have to wait. What a, what a wonderfully yeah. creative way. I think visual, visually, uh, sorry, visually what I have found because of being a person who struggled with, with uh, you know, the struggles I've had, using something visual as a metaphor really works with kids to be able to help them see something really clearly. You know, I, I had an experience when I was, when I was a little guy, uh, uh, there was a teacher who I was too afraid to draw because I didn't want to be judged by what the teacher saw. And so I left my page blank and the teacher told me afterwards that that was the best picture of a snowstorm that uh, she'd ever seen. Cause I just left the paper blank and I was like, Oh yeah. And that, that connected me to the teacher. And next time she asked me to draw something, I went mad. You know? Oh, that's awesome. I didn't just get reprimanded for being afraid. Yeah. I got supported for being uh, uh, scared of being judged. Right. And, being, and being dumb. You know, a lot of kids that don't engage in stuff because they're afraid they're going to fail you or they're going to, or you will be ashamed of them. And so shame, their own shame uh, really is a barrier. And that's what we try and do really hard using animation and using humor. Um, and, and I have found that, and, and another one of my heroes is, is Patch Adams, who went into hospitals and made kids laugh and and Gina let's face it <laughs> humor and for me being an idiot is is endearing to kids and the bigger idiot I am the more they love it and the more we can get some work done I just think it's great that you have ways of connecting with kids in that sense because there is something to be said about generationally the way different generations are raised. Like with my generation, for sure we were called stupid. We were called stupid if we could not accomplish something. We were made to feel stupid or to feel lesser than if we weren't as outgoing as the other children. 
if there was a subject that we were struggling with, it was like, why can't you just get on board with this and be smart like the other kids? So now looking at how different the generations are teaching their kids, there's a lot more empathy you'll find, I think in the millennial generation when they're having children than you would ever find in like the boomers or older generations. Because I don't think they have that understanding of you can, it's okay to be kind to a child. You don't lose any of your parental power. I think that that's the fear is that if I let this child believe that I'm, you know, your friend or if I'm kind to you, I lose some sort of respect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I, I, I must say that yesterday I was walking in the, in the grocery store and I heard a, a, a mother call her child stupid. Like, don't be stupid. I was like, is this 2020? Where are we? <laughs> But one of the things that I have found uh, in getting back to, to uh, what, what you were talking about earlier, Catherine, is that um, storytelling, sharing of stories, um, I have found is the one, one of the most powerful ways to and uh, um, effective ways to, to teach kids, especially if you share a story about your own experience. So if, 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 if a child is going through a fear of something, a fear of, uh, you know, leaving home or, or going somewhere and you say, wow, you know, I've, I've had that same feeling you have. And this is what I did. And when I was a little boy and you tell the story, then the kids listening to the story and they're like, oh, that, he knows exactly what I'm talking about because you share a similar situation or experience that you've had. And when children hear you sharing a story, first of all, they love to hear stories. And second of all, if it's in the same theme, then they, then they know you get it and then they feel supported. I think letting them know that fear is a thing that grown-ups also fear, feel is like a thing. Like I was, um, I was at a department store one time and this family was going down the escalator and the, there was one little girl that she stood behind. She was too scared to get on the escalator. And her mom hadn't noticed she was going down with the other kids. And finally she turns around halfway down the escalator and she's like calling her to just come like just telling her to just come, just get on, don't be afraid. And I was standing there waiting to get on the escalator. And I said to this little girl, I said, are you scared to get on the escalator? And she said, yeah, I'm scared. And I said, I'm scared too. Can we get on together? And I, and I let her take my hand and I said, let's get on together. Maybe it won't be so scary. And she took my hand and we both got on the escalator. And I remember having that moment where I was just like, oh my God, that was such a, an amazingly beautiful moment between a grown-up and a child where it was like, I get why you're scared. I totally get why your little body would be scared of these moving stairs. Stairs aren't supposed to move. It freaks you out. And I feel like having that connection with a kid is what a lot of parents miss out on. You see, you gave her permission to face her fear. Yeah. And, and, and by taking her hand, you supported that action that you were wanting her to help. And that, and that, that I think is, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very beautiful story. And, and, and sharing stuff like that with kids, I, I know that uh, when, when I share, there's a story that I've shared, I've, I've told to a million kids, one, one a very quick story. Can I tell you, it's, it's two minutes long. Yeah, of course, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there's an orphanage that I visit every year in South Africa called, called Bocciabello. A friend of mine started it in 1991 with just a few kids and there are about 300 kids who live there now. Uh, some of them are economic orphans because their parents can't afford them. Some of them have been trafficked and then rescued. Others discovered on the dump where they were scrounging and living, but just, a, it's the most beautiful, beautiful place. I, I love living in Hawaii at the moment. 
But if I want to go to a place that makes me happy, that orphanage, it's just the best, best holiday ever for me. So I was there one day and they were having what they call cookie day. So once or twice a year, a company will donate cookies whose uh, sell by date is expired. And they come to the orphanage and there's so many orphanages and they give them the cookies. And there's too many kids and not enough cookies. So they get one each, an oatmeal cookie or something. And you wouldn't believe it. They wait in a long line patiently. They get their cookie. They gobble it up. Next kid gets a cookie, gobbles it up all the way down the line. It, it was unbelievable. Except for one little boy. When he got his cookie, instead of gobbling it up like everyone else, I saw him look at the cookie for the longest time. He looks around to make sure no one's watching. And I see him eat this cookie perfectly in half. He's nibbling the edges and he's just looking at it. And he's, you can see he's just trying to make it sort of perfect. I see him look around again. He reaches in his pocket and very, very gently, he pulls out a piece of school book paper. You know, the white paper with the blue lines, right? He took that half a cookie and he folded it very carefully into this little piece of paper and he made a little packet, just perfect little packet. Edges were perfect. He looks around again, he puts it in his pocket and he scuttles off. So now I'm watching all the other kids get their cookies and this was just too much. I needed to know what was going on. So I walk over to him and I said, hey buddy, didn't you like the cookie? He goes, no, no, Mr. Trevor, that's the best cookie I ever tasted in my life. It had chocolate in it, it had nuts. I said, ah. I said, are you feeling sick? He goes, no. I said, because I saw you only ate half that cookie and you put it in your pocket. Then I said, oh, I know. I know what you're doing tomorrow. When nobody's got a cookie, you're gonna take yours out to make everybody jealous, right? You, that's why you're saving it. He goes, no, sir, uh, I, I'm saving it because I'm worried. I said, buddy, what are you worried about? He said, sir, I'm worried about my best friend. I said, why? He said, well, about two weeks ago, my best friend, he couldn't wake up in the morning. And they were patting his face and they put water on his face and he couldn't wake up. He's very sick. And the doctors came in the ambulance and they took him to the hospital. And he's in the hospital now and he's very sick. But, but I think maybe he's going to come home next week or maybe in two weeks. And I'm saving half the cookie for him. And I, I share that story because what made that child so empathetic? What made that child not want to just grab that cookie and eat it down? And that's what I'm learning from Marion Clutie, who started that orphanage through her various techniques, is, is how to actually let kids know that when they do something, it can have a huge difference in somebody else's life. And when I went back and I told that little boy that that little story that I share about him, that a million children have heard, and if maybe four or five or 10 of those kids out of that whole bunch are more empathetic, then what he did is now out in the world and shared by story. And that sometimes we can do the smallest little thing can make a huge difference. And so we must never underestimate how just a smile, just a pat on someone's back. Somebody who's sitting alone at school, if people ever go back to school again in this world, yeah. you see somebody alone. What we want to be able to have kids be empathetic enough to go up and find out why. And, and, and that's very interesting because I was actually, so you have a podcast. We were listening to episodes of your podcast. And in one of them, I believe it was a kindness episode 
Um, you spoke about um, on your route, there were a few homeless people that you um, have come across and the stories with them. Um, while you were, you know, talking about those stories, it re once again reminded me of being a kid because my mom tells this kind of like um, story to anybody who will listen about me as a kid. I would cry whenever I would see homeless people. And I'm in, I grew up in New York City, so that's a lot of crying because um, there's a lot of yeah. homeless people. Yeah. And my mother said it would get to a point where she would have to spot a homeless person from blocks away so that she could take an alternative route. Cause she was like, I didn't have enough money to give people like, cause you wanted me to give them, like if, if we have food, you wanted me to give them that. You wanted to talk to them or whatever the case was. She was like, and that was nice. She was like, I, 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 I love that, you, that about you, but it almost interfered with everything else we had to do. So now um, I find that interesting because it's like my sisters weren't necessarily like that. And to, to this day, there is a part of me that can't walk by homelessness without like this feeling. So it makes me question, is empathy normal in some people and then have to be taught in other people? Or is it just that we all have it and some of us just kind of like the light is on a little bit brighter? You know what I mean? I'm like, I think my sisters are very empathetic, but why was I the crier? Why was I the one who, you know what I mean? As children, yeah. what was it about me that they didn't necessarily have? Um, and so what if you, if you've noticed anything in children, like the way that they react, is mm. it, societally is it something because you know then I also think about like in in the United States of America even the way that children are taught about like giving and stuff like that it's a very different culture so I wonder um what your experience has been with um empathy naturally and empathy taught that, that's a great question and you know I've heard various different uh, explanations and, and and people you know sharing information for me personally I think all children are born uh, empathetic if you think about it, and I remember growing up in South Africa, my grandfather had a farm and on the farm, there was a little kid who was my age. He was a black kid and we were four or five or six. And boy, we played, we didn't even know we were different colors. We had no clue. And I think kids are like that. You'll see, I've seen some beautiful photographs when some kid is crying and another kid comes and puts their arm around them. I think that as we grow, when we have been vulnerable and get hurt, then we start closing up. And I think, I think as kids get older, there's this protection that grows around them. Some people are able to open it like you, where you can be, you can be empathetic. Um, you know, Brene Brown talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. We're taught a lot to be sympathetic. Uh, but, I, but I personally believe that, that through various experiences where kids have maybe been empathetic and it's been rebuffed or uh, they they felt uncomfortable, something they, they then protect themselves so that they're not so open to it. But a lot of experiments have shown that when people are put in a situation when there's something that's traumatic that's happened, look at, at 911 for, for an example. The people who came out of the woodwork and did the most amazing things. I mean, hey, New York taxi drivers didn't swear for like four days. Can you imagine that? But, but seriously, uh, you, you look at disaster, you look at tragedy. There are, there's so much empathy when that happens. And I think through crisis, sometimes that protection shield is dropped and we are able to do it. Now, here's what I would have said uh, if, if it was a situation where we were walking, you and I, and you were a kid, 
and you were crying uh, because of the homeless and probably crying because you cared about it, but you knew you couldn't help them really. So there was probably two things that were going on for you. Feeling disappointed that you couldn't do something to help because maybe your mom said, we can't give everybody money. And what I would have done was I said, okay, before we go, let's write and draw little notes and keep them in our pocket that just says, I hope you, are, you have a better day today, um, you know, or something, just something, uh, you know. And, and when you go, you say, I'm sorry, I haven't got any money, but here, this is for you. And to be able to, to, be able to then give the child permission to show and give something, maybe that they don't even have uh, money, but to give something to the other person, because that's what a child wants them to know that they, by giving a homeless person money was, was showing, showing you, oh, let's put it this way, it, it was letting them know that you cared because yeah. there was no other way for you to show them you cared by giving, other than giving them money because you yeah. can smile or say something in, in passing. And sometimes they're scary because a lot of guys have schizophrenia, a lot of women have schizophrenia. So that, that, that being able to, to you know, draw something or give them a little something uh, is, is a way that I would, have, I would have taken that situation and tried to, you know, try to, to, to make it a little, a little better. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because it's like, what is the fine line between making sure that a child retains their humanity, right? Like who they are naturally, but then at the same time protects themselves in situation, like you said, you never know if that person is violent. So I, I'm constantly aware when I'm walking in New York City now that I'm like, a lot of it might have been that I wanted them to feel seen. Like, I see you, I know that you're going through this. But ironically, when I was an adult, I'm walking down the same street. And sometimes it's not that I don't want to, like, to get eye contact, but I don't want to be harassed either because I don't know what situation I'm in. So it makes me question, at what point did I lose that humanity? At what point did I have to protect myself more than give? To another person and does that happen in childhood does it happen in adulthood was it something that was said right so like when you're when you're talking about this i even think about my niece and like the things that we say to her when we're in the street the things that we do that she notices when we're in the street yeah. um and then just in general living in a place you know a big city like this one um where something is kind of like normal homelessness yeah. here yeah. is almost normal to a degree where after a while, it becomes invisible for some people and children notice that. Um, yeah. So yeah, humanity is something I constantly think of with children because I think they have so much of it. They just don't fully, uh, they understand it. They don't understand why adults don't have it. Like, yeah. it's just, you know? That's so true. And you know what's, what's kind of interesting that when I speak to kids, I, I talk to them about gut feel and research is showing that we do have some, some, of, some of the... the, the, the um, connections to our brains are in our stomach. And that, that was basically from, from the early days when it was survival. You know, you, if your tummy, if you felt uncomfortable at something, it probably was bad. And so that I say to kids, see if you feel it. If, if, something, if something doesn't feel right, it normally isn't. That's why trust your first feeling that you have. And you know, that's even interesting in testing. When you do tests, like bubble tests for kids, normally the first instinct you have is the right one on a test because then you go back and you start messing up. I wrote a book called true or false tests stink because I was a terrible test taker because I would then start questioning, but uh, saying to kids, 
to use that intuition because I think kids are very intuitive. And if something, if they walk past a homeless guy and it does seem like they're maybe not the right kind of person to connect with, then it's like, listen, listen to, to, to what you're feeling. Um, in, in, in Austin, those homeless guys that I drive past on my bicycle, uh, there was one, uh, one guy in particular, when I first encountered him, I, I stopped and I just happened to have my window open and he was right there. And I said to him, listen, I I'm gonna, what's your name? He told me his name, I told him, I said, I wanna tell you something. I give all my money to an orphanage in South Africa. There are 300 kids there, they really need it. So I just wanted to tell you, um, please, I, I don't wanna feel bad not giving you stuff. So I just wanted to let you know, that's where my money goes. And from then onwards, he just, when I stop, he waves at me. And the other day we stopped and I say, hey, Eddie, how's it going? What's going on with you? And oh, he's this and that tells me all his stories. And uh, I said, have a great day. And I gave him a big smile. He said, you know what? Um, when you smile like that, it's better than money. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So it was, you know, but, but I did that because I, I wanted to... Um, manage my discomfort with, with how, because I, I am an empathetic person and I, I want to help everybody. But being able to do that, and I think teaching that to kids as well is like, so if you can't connect with them, how, how it, would a note work? Would a little, making a little something, a little charm or something, a good luck charm, you know, that kind of stuff, I think could, could help, help the person who is empathetic remain empathetic and not block up too much because sometimes when we are con constantly giving, we get taken and that hurts. And then that makes us shield again. Yeah. Yeah. Protect your empathy, but at least let yeah. it show, you know, yeah. let it show a little bit more. I wanted to just touch on something before we get into our last segment for the show, um, because I really loved one of the things I read in your book in connecting with kids. Um, about listening to children, because I really think this, you make some amazing points and I just want to go through them real quick and anything you want to expand on, feel free to expand on. Um, yeah. First bullet point I have is let kids know you are listening, especially if they're talking about their worries and concerns. Um, I'm just going to go through the bullet points. Yeah. Would you like me to respond to them or just? Yeah, if you, if you have anything you'd like to add, I mean, I, I just think they're great points. I mean, that, even that first one, let kids know you're listening um, is so important because we don't often listen to kids because yeah. A lot of times they're rambling or telling the same stories. And so you become disconnected from it. It becomes a, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. And you're not really listening to either the emotion that's behind what's being said or the point of the story even. If you can like filter out all of the little child mind's way of like taking in a situation, if you can filter that out and get to, oh, this is what this child is trying to say to me. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. And when they're talking about their worries and concerns, I think this is um, specifically important now, like f for me personally, I'm, you know, I'm raising a little boy. And a lot of times men, especially in the States, are not given the ability to voice vulnerabilities like, w like worries and concerns. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I can say uh, that I think is critically important is put away the electronic devices when you are chatting with your kid. And even if you make a special time every day where it's like, you know what, this is, this is no electronic zone for the next 15 minutes. 
yeah. put it away in the other room, not even nearby, because I have seen a million times a kid pouring their heart out with something that's really important and the, uh-huh, yeah, 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 no, no, I got your back, I got your back, and it's, and it's, so being able to, that is signaling to a child that you are serious about what they're saying. And sometimes the most trivial stuff to us is really, really important to a child that can actually traumatize them and, and stick with them for, for a long time in life. Uh, even something that we think is so silly. I was at a school just, just before COVID and this little girl came up to me and she was telling me all these stories. So she was saying that her, her father was in jail and, um, but she loves her father's parents, her granny and grandpa on her father's side were really nice, but she's not allowed to be in touch with them because they're the parents of this kid this person who's in jail and her mother's got cancer and she's living with her grandpa now and her grandpa's got emphysema and he's got the oxygen tanks. She's telling me all of this and the teacher comes up behind her and goes, she's such a drama queen. So yeah, such a drama queen. And I'm like, oh my goodness me, this child needed somebody just to sympathize and empathize with her at that moment. And the teacher is just saying, oh, don't let her bother you, Mr. Romain. And I'm like, whoa. Please, right. and I kept in touch with that kid and, and I, I sent her a journal, got her into doing journal writing because she just needed to get that stuff out of her system. But back to, back to what you said, yeah. Uh, sorry, no, yeah. It, it makes me think of, um, so another thing that you had mentioned, I, I think this is in an interview, um, was the way that you correlate bullying and the backpack. Um, it kind of makes me use the same um, analogy but think of the fact that no matter what, there is the backpack, right? Like everybody has their baggage, let's call it. Um, and some will use it as a, as a like, a, as bullies, like to put their weight on you. Now that you're holding all of that. In that situation, that little girl was kind of giving you her backpack, but not in like a bullying way. It was just like, do I make sense? Or is this normal? Or do you just have a moment to listen to it? Do you know what I mean? Because I know yeah. that this is something, I don't know what it is, because I do think they process things happening. They just can't process it, like you said about 9-11, that it's not going to happen every day for the next three days. But they knew something happened. It's that weight that she was giving you that as adults, we, because we don't allow each other processing feelings and emotions and heaviness, everything simplified to drama queen or... Um, yeah. extra you're being so extra like stuff like that so it's it, it how young that was done to her and if you weren't sitting there she would have internalized that like oh, yes. entirely and then and then this person who came to the school that, that because I was funny and all the kids wanted to come speak to me afterwards they feel safe enough to share and really what I did was I grabbed one handle of the bag she was carrying and I helped her carry that for a little bit and and you know and that's what that's what I think we have to do because that is her bag yeah. And uh, we can just help her lighten the load of that bag as an adult and, and, yeah. and help her. But yeah, I, I think that's such, thank you for, for remembering that. That's such a great analogy. It, it works really well. Again, one of those things that you can do with kids where you can see something physical or share something that they can actually see that helps them. I, I, I've done a, a, something that, that works in that way too. So I, I take a crisp dollar bill and then I said, you see, um, so what is this worth? What is this dollar worth? And the kids are like, 
a dollar. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's worth a dollar. I said, so watch this. I crumple up the dollar. I say bad things to the dollar, mean to it. I, I spit on the dollar, throw the dollar on the ground. And I say, look, that dollar has been abused and it's been, been horrible. And I pick up the dollar and I smooth it out and I hold it up and I say, what is this? What is this worth? And the kid's like, oh, it's a dollar. It's, it's worth a dollar. See, so the worth is there, but a lot of stuff may have happened. But what we have to do is try and try and keep that good person we are inside, even though things happen to us in our lives. Because yeah. we, can, we are still worth what we were before somebody said something bad to us or were mean to us. And uh, using an analogy like that is, is helpful to them. Yeah, totally. definitely going, um, going back to the list of things too. Um, I mean, I listed them all because I love them all. Um, hear what they are saying, even if it's tough to listen to. That is a big one too, because sometimes kids are saying things to us that we don't want to hear, that we don't want to think about as adults. We don't want to think about our children being anxious. We don't want to think about our children being stressed. We don't want to hear those stories. So in an attempt to make them stronger, we brush off those stories as if they are unimportant. You know, we don't listen to their anxieties because to us, you're just a regular kid, whether you're, you know, a very young child to an adolescent, we just kind of like go, well, you'll get, you'll get over it. You'll, you'll, you know, have a backbone, be stronger, like do this instead of actually listening and honoring the fact that it's okay. I love the way that you communicate with kids and that like, it's okay. I'm scared too. It's okay. I'm nervous too. I think that's a beautiful way of talking to a child about some, or having some difficult discussions. Which yeah. And, and what, yeah. Sorry. What happens when we're uncomfortable is that it makes it, we start judging ourselves and thinking we're failing as parents or we're failing as guardians or because we can't deal with the discomfort. So we brush it away to save our own feelings. Never mind the child. You know, we, we're like, oh man, if I can't deal with this, I'm uncomfortable. I'm failing this child. So let's just get, let's get that feeling away. Yeah. And that's really shortchanging the kids. Yeah. Let's talk about this at all. Um, yeah. One of the yeah. things, one of the other points that I really loved, and I think this is so important, was let them finish what they're saying before you jump in with a response. The amount of times I have seen adults cut children off and stop their story because they either don't want to hear it, they're, you know, feeling impatient for some reason, they think they've got the perfect answer for the kid, they just want to give it. Really, it's just, I'm going to give you this answer so you'll shut up. In all honesty, that's the attitude that I've seen a lot of adults have with children where it's like, I just want to give this to you so, so you'll stop talking to me right at this moment because I have a million other things, grown-up things I want to do. And then that teaches that child, what I believe that teaches that child is to never speak up, to never, because you won't be heard. You won't be heard, so what's the point in trying to make your voice heard? And that we can teach, be that in a child. We teach kids to stand up for themselves, right? That's what we say. One of the most uh, powerful ways of standing up for, your, for yourself is by explaining or sharing what you're going through. And if that's cut off, then we are, we are taking the power away from, from yeah. children, the power of solving their own problems. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. It, it's, so interesting. I've noticed um, I, I, it, it's kind of like a producing technique when someone is producing in an interview, and this is one of your points as well, 
which is in a, when you're producing an interview and you have to listen so that you get them to repeat your question. So you get them to say, you know, like this is a give and take constantly, right? And I have to not only listen to when you're talking, but then I also have to understand enough of what you're saying so I can have the leading questions. If that same technique was used with children, because the whole point is making sure you get out of them in an interview what you need, right? You get the story that you need. Well, if the same patience was used with children, you would, you would realize so much because it is a technique, right? It, is, it involves yeah. listening and it involves repeating. And repeating not to like speak down to people, but to go, I, I hear you. And I, but I, I need a little more. Like I need to understand more. And sometimes I've learned even with kids, with my niece constantly, I never dumb myself down for her because she's very intelligent. I never make her think I'm dumb, but I always try to go, I didn't really understand that, but not like she's dumb, kind of like, um, let's find another way to like, I, I, I just need more. I need a little more. And she likes that. She's kind of like, oh, she's super invested. Let's tell yeah. you everything. You know what I mean? Even though she already said it to me, I kind of go, I, I understood that. I don't know if she can go further. And what she does every single time she does, mm -hmm. but I, I'm giving her that moment. You know what I mean? Um, but I noticed that that comes from my producing skill and I go, I don't know if, parents are even taught that i don't i don't think so you know and I, I, I know the, the stuff that i've learned is just been working with kids uh, traumatized kids for 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 30 years and uh, and and i think it's just really really important on forums like we're having today to be able to share these ideas that 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 if somebody is is watching and says wow you know what man that i can do that it's actually quite simple yeah. listen put the stuff away because sometimes people are so embroiled in their life, especially in days like, like we're going through at the moment where there's so much being thrown at us. And really our stress levels are so high that we're almost just trying to survive. And then you're trying to help little ones, you know, navigate. And how do you help a child be hopeful for the future when all we are, talking about all the time is the doom and gloom that this crazy world is, you know, but I, I must say though, I have a lot of faith in, in, in our kids. We, yeah. there's a generation coming up who are not going to put up with nonsense. Yeah. They are going to, they are not going to put up with just letting somebody give an explanation because they're in a, in a, in a position of power. We are going to see kids. They're going to help the cl climate. They are, going to, they are going to make things equal when it comes to um, uh, racialism. They're going to, make, they're going to help the poverty. I, I, I hope I can be alive long enough just to see the beginnings of that because that's going to happen. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I've always said that um, I feel like generationally millennials are creating the change that Generation Z will actually put into place, <laughs> they will put it into practice. Millennials are setting that stage for the next generation to come and say, okay, this is, these are the guidelines. You guys have to put it into practice now so that the world sees that this is possible and that we can all listen better, be more empathetic and understanding to each other. Um, I'm going to, that brings us to our final segment of the show. Um, you've been wonderful. Uh, oh, thank you. This is to be here. So amazing. Thank you for the beautiful stories. Thank you for everything that you do. Um, the last segment of the show is our Dear Gina segment, 
where we have listeners that write in and they ask advice and we, you know, take a shot at giving them advice. Uh, so today's Dear Gina. Uh, Dear Gina, as an aspiring writer, I have a hard time putting my stories to paper. I'm such, I'm so much better at publicly speaking, but whenever I sit in front of my computer, I find myself stuck. Do you have any advice on how I can get over that or any writing techniques that can help someone whose strength is verbal storytelling? Um, all right, I'll take a stab at this first and I'll pass it <laughs> over. Um, you have to force yourself. I hate to say it, I have, like I'm the same way. Uh, I'm much better at verbally telling stories. I have dyslexia too. So when I sit down at a computer, it can be very difficult for me to write things out and have the patience to write things out. And I've, I've literally just been like, you know, almost in a, in a way like you're gonna feel so good about it when you actually set this down onto paper because, because it's a difficulty for me. So I, I literally tell myself, you're gonna look at this when you're done writing this, when you're done typing this up, you're gonna look at this and you're gonna be so proud of yourself because you actually took the time to do it instead of stressing out and not doing it. So I think you're much better off saying, okay, this Tuesday at two o'clock, I am sitting down for an hour and forcing myself to write anything. Just write anything to get the muscles going. It's like stretching before a workout, right? Whatever's on your brain, just, just keep typing away or writing away if you're using a traditional pen and pad. Uh, I have terrible handwriting, so <laughs> I, although I have both, I have serial killer handwriting, so I try to type up stuff. <laughs> um, I would say that, I mean, my, my only advice to you is like, whenever I'm going through something like a writer's block, I will first, first I will take a break. I will take a break and I will do something that sort of takes my mind off of the pressure I'm putting myself under. And then I force myself to get back to work. So I'll take that break creatively. I'll, you know, watch my favorite, one of my favorite comedians that makes me laugh and I'll, I'll let, I'll de-stress or I'll watch my favorite funny movie and I'll de-stress and I'll get that off my mind. And then once that's done, I know by the end of this movie or by the end of this comedy special, I have to be ready to go and write. And yeah. I'll give myself that break and then get into it. So I hope that helps in some way, Trevor, I'll let you take it away as somebody who's written books, who's done a lot more writing than I could ever imagine. Uh, yeah, interesting as well. Dyslexic who's written 50 books. Uh, it's interesting. So there are two things. Uh, what I did right from the very beginning, I, I found a technique that's helped me tremendously. As a writer, we often think that there's a million people who's going to be reading. How are you going to satisfy all the readers? I imagine I'm writing a letter to one person and I am actually telling them something. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I imagine I, and, and sometimes I'll even put a picture on my board of just a person that I, I imagine I'm sitting and telling a story to. So then I have in mind that uh, this is actually not just me waffling, I need to get a point across because there's somebody listening. Number two, and I did this, I've done this for, for most of my books. I write uh, 10 minutes at a time. And that's just because of my ADD and because of, uh, of my dyslexia. It sometimes lands up being two hours, but I set myself a time in the morning when I wake up, I have my coffee and I sit for 10, I, I sit for 10 minutes and I write. If it's going great, I carry on writing. If it's not, I stop and I go back the next day because you can write a paragraph in 10 minutes. Yeah. And what I found is if I say to myself, oh man, I've got to block off another four hours to, to write on this book, 
I am procrastinating. I'm sitting around four. I don't have four hours. I've got to answer all these emails. So then I immediately, it, it's not good for me. But I, I always say to people when I've done writing courses, in the morning, when you're fresh, have a cup of coffee before you get involved in the world, just write for 10 minutes. And you have got 10 minutes every day. And you can do it in the afternoon, anytime when you come home from work. Everybody has 10 minutes. Even if you have to go sit in the toilet with the door closed, you have got 10 minutes. And um, there was a, there's a lovely African saying that is, little by little, a little becomes a lot. And that has been my writing philosophy. Because then one paragraph becomes two. And when I see one page and two page and I read over and I'm like, whoa, I'm looking forward to that 10 minutes tomorrow. Uh, and it is only 10 minutes, so I can do it. And then you're in it and sometimes three hours later, I'm like, wow, I've got to stop here. Almost three hours. <laughs> Catherine, you want to take a stab at this? Um, so I actually wrote some notes um, because my brain was doing a ton with this. Like I, I love the both that you said and I agree, right? Like I agree about like um, taking pauses, uh, not giving yourself a limit, but, but being realistic with that limit. Um, so the 10 minutes is great because 10 minutes can go by really quickly unless you're working out. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's an hour. Um, right. um, uh, so one thing I, I try to tell myself is I'm horrible at grammar and spelling. So I no longer pay attention to that. Like in that first draft, I don't pay attention to it as long as it's legible enough for me to go back and know exactly what I meant. You know what I mean? Because there's been times where I'm like typing and then I look back and I go, that's not a sentence. So that's different. No, make sure that you like, if you, if you spelled the word wrong, don't harp on that. Don't go, like, don't go into spelling checks. You don't have to copyright in the moment. So don't let that stop you because that has stopped me a lot. Um, another thing is like Gina, I also watch content. I have this habit of like, I'll go to a movie when we went to movie theaters, I went, I would watch a movie. I'd be in that mode. And then the minute the movie gets 10 minutes in, especially if it's a great movie, the creative starts coming in. My brain is like, Oh my God, that just sparked this and this and that. Now I'm not telling you to do that when you go to a movie theater, if we ever go back, but if you're home, and you've seen the movie before, right? Like you, you put it for that purpose or you maybe have seen it once and it's inspiring you for whatever you were trying to tackle, have a pen and paper in front of you because that's when I write little words, right? I give myself like, but I give myself three words. So I will say like, um, if I already have an established character, I'll say Justin, Egg, and then this, because I know like you, um, I think you had mentioned this earlier, Trevor, about um, building a visual in my brain. I'm going, Justin is my character, the egg is my scenario, and I know exactly what I'm talking about. So later when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, I know that paragraph. I know what this is about. Um, so I'm doing that while I'm watching content. The third one is uh, we're so inclined to doing things on our computers now. So like everybody wants to sit, and if you're a writer for like um, screenplay or teleplay, whichever, um, everybody wants to sit on final draft and like write dialogue. For a lot of people who aren't probably zenials, we were taught to write with pen and paper. 
there is something to be said about pen and paper still. It feels different. It is totally different. And the distraction is different because I could be on my computer. I have my word open. I'm like, I'm going to type. And then the email comes in. Done. My brain is now in another nice. place. Right. But when I'm on pen and paper, I, you know, try to take away the distraction, put that airplane mode and just do it there. So try to go back into that practice and buy stationary. Have fun with buying stationary. Like you want to use it, right? Like I think a lot of us don't own that because we're like, we don't have to go to school. Yeah, we don't use it anymore. Yeah. Right, exactly. So buy stationary. And then the last one, which has helped me a lot because I am very much a story, a verbal storyteller. Um, if you're lucky enough to find a partner who has a skill that you don't have, um, you know, building the trust. So you don't meet them and immediately go, we're going to be a partnership. You have to really build a relationship. I have gotten to a creative place with one of my partners who her skill is the physical writing. My skill is a world building. We now know how to work off of each other. So finding people who are like-minded, but can have your opposite skill, you know, that helps with writing a lot. Because you know what? Some of us aren't going to be the person who, Page one, some of us are going to be the person in the brainstorm who has somebody else be able to help us. And that's okay too. So that's, that's my take. Um, I, can, I, can I sort of just go back one step to where you were talking about physical things and stationery? So I create a lot of my books in journals. I have hundreds of little journals and I think 40 something big ones. And what I do is while I'm watching TV, I, um, I draw oh, wow. in my journals. And, and this is basically where my ideas start coming from. And uh, so when I, I write down little things that then become books or then become stories or... Wow. You know, so, yeah. And that's just, and it's a blank, blank book. Some of it, as you can see, is just stuff I've written down and... Just wow. Yes. Yeah, so I love pen and paper. Yeah, Agreed. Physical writing. Before I ever type anything out, I usually, I mean, I have a ton of my comedy notebooks, all different comedy notebooks that I never look, like I hold on to them like they're treasure. And I mean, some of them are like over 10 years old, these things that I've kept in my closet for the longest time. Because Kat, you're right. There is something about putting pen to actual paper. You're even more inclined to stop somebody from interrupting you when you're writing you're more inclined to be like stop i'm in the middle of something one second than you are when you're on your computer because you're right a message comes up a notification comes up all of a sudden you're distracted but the second you're actually doing the physical work of writing it out it becomes more of a big deal if somebody interrupts you because you're like this train of thought i'm gonna lose it and then i'm going to get upset that i've lost this train of thought because i allowed an interruption you know you need those 10 minutes Everybody has 10 minutes. Do those 10 minutes. Gina, um, yeah. Gina do, you, do you find, uh, Kat as well, do you find that, that sometimes in, in those 10 years ago books, you can find material that you, can, that you use now? Because that's what's happening to me. I, I'm writing a book at the moment, and, and it was just a headline. And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, gonna, it's a really silly little children's book, just because I'm tired of writing serious stuff. And, and it's called, Do Chickens Fart? And, <laughs> I wrote that down in, in, a, in, a, in one of my journals, I don't know, 15 years ago, and I was paging through the other day, and I'm like, that's hilarious. I oh would buy that God, book. That, that is hilarious. Just, so, hilarious. And, and it's going to be true things. Do, do snails, do, do snails burp, you know, do, do hippos dream. It's going to be 
but but yeah. So do you do you find that you guys have used material from before? Well, oh yeah. First of all, I would love to know if chickens fart. Um, they do. They do. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that thought now. I will be googling later. Um, they, they do. They do. They fart. Yes. They do. I love yes. it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. I go through my old journals and I'm like, or my old comedy books, and I'm like, why did I stop writing about that? Why did yeah. I stand on that? Why did I let that go? And a lot of it was because I'm in the beginning of, you know, it was the beginning of my career and there wasn't a lot of confidence that I could deliver something the way it needed to be delivered. So I would write it down and be like, I'm going to store this for when I'm in a place that I know I can really say what I want to say, you know, fearlessly without, you know, second guessing what I'm saying, you know, Chris Rock gave a piece of advice to a comic. I never forgot this because I heard it third party. Um, where he said, if you go up on stage and you don't believe what you're saying, the audience won't believe what you're saying. So there is a part of me that would look at old material and go, oh, I know why I didn't say that. Because although I had that thought, the thinking was almost along the lines of the woman I would become. Not the woman I was then, but the woman I am now who can actually fully give that thought some life. And I, that's why I never throw out journals. That's why I just never throw them out because... I hold on to them because you never know what kind of gems you're going to find. And when it comes to writing as well, if you, if you write uh, often on a computer, that file gets into another file, gets into a folder somewhere, you never, and you want to go look for it, never. Yeah. And, and, and if people say, but I'll use keywords. I'm like, keywords. I, I, you know, I put in a keyword and 5,000 documents come up. It's like, oh, but I can just page through a journal and I, I can quickly find stuff from from years ago. So, so for aspiring writers, and I think especially people who are, who are doing things like television, like, like comedy, that uh, what really happens is we see something happen and, and we say, that is really funny. And if we had to wait and then go when we're doing a writing session, try and write it down, you've lost that, that thing. I just will haul out that notebook in the middle of sometimes a meeting, excuse me, <laughs> I'm gonna write this down because that's my career and, uh, and I don't want to forget it. No, that's, I mean, and I, I think that as, you know, some people are more digital people, now there are like um, assets. So there are uh, different, I, I think, I forgot what it's called, but it's kind of like an iPad, but it's made specifically for writers and artists. Um, yeah. And it's like, you can doodle on it and then you can actually, yeah. like write on it and then right. it allows you to make it into a file that then you can send to yourself so if you you know if you're not somebody who you know you're you're environmentally friendly let's just say that is an alternative or even for myself um one um one thing that i found for screenwriting which is um so for for that standard is final um final draft right yes. i actually found that there's an app version of it so when i'm at a stage where I want to actually write like dialogue oddly enough the app is easier for me than the physical computer and I realized that it's because I'm used to texting I'm the text generation yeah. so I can text like nobody's business and then I go wait a minute texting is dialogue it's the same thing so if okay. you're a screenwriter and you come from that generation where texting is how you express yourself Get the app. You'll see yeah. that like it's gonna come to you, but find the way that it works with your skill already. And make it easy. Make it the easiest for you. And and I think the the, the most important about getting stuff down is don't don't try and store it in your brain. 
and then later on try and, and, and bring it back, especially when it comes to comedy and, 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 and silly stuff. You know, I, I was once in, in the middle of a talk that had nothing to do with what my brain was thinking at the time. I was giving a talk to a bunch of adults and I was, while I've given that talk so many times, I'm thinking about something else. That's the ADD brain. And then I was just, I was just, and I, so I stopped in the middle of it because I want, if I didn't say it or write it out, it was going to be gone. And I just said, and, and basically what I said was, I was born at a very young age, so I don't remember much about it. And uh, that was a line I wanted to use and everybody stopped and then they burst out laughing. And it was great because it broke up the tedium of the delivery I was giving of my talk because when you give a talk too many times, no matter how funny it is, when you are not thinking it's funny anymore, they are not, right? Yeah, and that's why I got to hand it to dudes who can, who can go on the road and do comedy for a whole year and still be able to find that to make it. Fun. But anyway, that's uh, <laughs> we could talk. Forever. I think I also I think I think we need to collaborate sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I think the three yes. of us can write a book together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, guys, this is the birth of a of a project. Now, you guys are now. All of you listening are now here and all of you watching are now uh, present at this moment. Um, Trevor, tell everybody where they can find you. Where can they find you on social media? Where can they find your stuff? Uh, let them know. Okay. It, it's, it's actually very easy. It's everything sort of goes through Trevor Romaine, my name. And there's no E on Romaine. I was called Lettuce Head my whole school career, but there's no E. It's trevorromaine.com. And it's Two R's, Trevor Romain. Yeah, so that's the, the Facebook and the Instagrams and the, all that stuff that, that Alex does because I just don't even want to. Um, <laughs> and then he yells at me. It's like, you need eyeballs. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I need a pen. So yes, TrevorRomain.com has got all, all, of, all of the stuff. And um, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Catherine, tell the lovely people where they can find you. <laughs> on Instagram, it's at Catherine G. Menzo, dot Menzoza. That's at K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-G-R-A-C-E dot M-E-N-D-O-Z-A long. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, it is at Kathy Grace. That's K-A-T-H-I-E-G-R-A-C-E. The number is two, four. Hey. You guys know you can find me on Instagram at uh, gbrion. TikTok is at gbrion80. Uh, check out The Floor is Lava, my special on Amazon. Uh, there's a couple of other things on Amazon you can check out. Uh, my very first special is on there called Pacifically Speaking, my, my firstborn special. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, or the projects on HBO, the latest of which is the Hot Comedy Festival, which you guys can check out because I was hella pregnant. And you can see how, how much fun it was to do comedy uh, <laughs> while I was pregnant. Uh, you guys know I love to end the show with a piece of advice that my mom gives me to this day. When life throws a lot at you, handle it one catastrophe at a time. One catastrophe at a time, people. Thank you so much, Trevor, for joining us. This was incredible. Uh, yeah. Everybody get the books. They're so they're so wonderful. Make sure you head over to trevorromaine.com. Uh, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you so much, Kat. See you guys. Have a great rest of your week. Do it like that. Yeah. You the kind of chick that's ready to fight back. Yeah. Looks damn good, but really she type bad. Mm -hmm. Go to sleep, I call him my nightcap. Born killer, you a born killer. Mm. Go on, get him. Go on, go on, get him. Mm.